1: Welcome to
0: the New Books Network.
2: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be speaking to Dr. Alka Menon about her book titled Refashioning Race, How Global Cosmetic Surgery Crafts New Beauty Standards, published by the University of California Press in 2023. As the book suggests, this is a deep dive into the world of cosmetic surgeons, cosmetic surgery, cosmetic surgery research, and all manner of things to think about what does race look like, who decides what race looks like, um, and how does that perhaps have impacts beyond, you know, maybe some niche cosmetic surgery journals. Uh, So Alka, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast to tell us all about this fascinating world. Thank you so much for having me. Could we start off, please, with you
1: introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this book? Sure. So my name is Alka Menon. I'm an assistant professor of sociology at Yale University. And this book really came out of a paper that I wrote in a graduate seminar on biomedicine. Uh, I entered grad school interested in something about the relationship between medicine and social identities like race or gender But I didn't know exactly how I was going to capture something about that relationship. Uh, And then when I was looking for a paper topic, I discovered a New York Times article on ethnic cosmetic surgery. And after I looked up some of the surgeons who were featured there, I found they'd written these racial standards for nose jobs, like the ideal African-American nose. Uh, And so in an effort to understand these, where they came from, who was deciding them, uh, what other kinds of categories were used and why... I kept digging and digging, I expanded to talking to surgeons, um, and it really became a much more global story uh, that that, uh, radiated outward from the US all the way to Malaysia to say something about this field of global cosmetic surgery.
2: What an interesting beginning. Thank you for starting us off with that. You talk early in the book, um, and I believe it's mentioned or something like it is mentioned in that New York Times article, in fact, the idea that cosmetic surgeons can be some kind of not just analyzing race, but a race broker in a way. How can we understand them in this sense?
1: Yes. So in that in the article that really captured my attention from the New York Times, it was even better. The the surgeons described themselves as amateur sociologists. And so as a budding sociologist, I was very curious, what could that mean? Um, And what what surgeons were saying in their journal articles and in conversations with me was that they were serving as a kind of intermediary who could translate these abstract racial notions of what people should look like and to be considered a member of a racial group onto the concrete... You know, very specific elements of a given person's body. So they, you know, the term racial broker I, that I'm using comes out from Elizabeth Corver Glenn's work on realtors. And her version of race brokers focuses on people who are gatekeepers um, in social spheres, making, having a little bit more power to, to make judgments and to set racial meaning and opinion. And that's really something I was seeing in this space with cosmetic surgeons, both in terms of translating, circulating ideas about what racial meaning meant within a society, but also importing and translating racial notions across societies.
2: Hmm. What an intriguing sentence to read. I can definitely see why you'd want to investigate further and, and use this concept as well. Um, You mentioned earlier that as you said this this idea as you poked at it radiated out from the US all the way to Malaysia and the book does in fact focus in a lot of ways on this very interesting comparison why did you choose to focus on the US and Malaysia in the book this is a great question so
1: i started with those articles that i saw published in medical journal journals and the racial categories that were mentioned seemed salient in the context of the united states but When I took another look at them, they were not all written by American-based surgeons. Some were written by people in Colombia, in South Korea, in Taiwan. And so when trying to figure out what it meant for people to be using these these racial categories that were familiar to me as an American-based sociologist, I I wanted to sort of contextualize the U.S. in a, a bigger picture. Um, there's many really interesting books that focus on cosmetic surgery in the context of a given country like the U.S. or South Korea or Brazil. And those tell you something very particular about any one of those given societies. And let's say if you're interested in race, something about the race relations or the gender relations in that society. But what I was picking up on from this journal article Uh, analysis is that there was a story that was happening across countries that I hadn't seen so much written about, that it was a global story of both cultural diffusion and scientific knowledge dissemination. And so to get at that, uh, you know, you can't. There's you have to look from somewhere to see something about the global. So I I looked at medical journal articles and international plastic surgery conferences where surgeons came from all over. But to really be able to ground something specific about race, I needed also to uh, be placed in a particular place. And so the U.S. was one place that I I picked as a place that was very important in the field of cosmetic surgery, and as a place with a huge domestic market. Um, and and one whose uh, cultural notions of race and cultural labels certainly had circulated in these journal articles. But he picked Malaysia as another place because it was almost as far away as possible from the United States, and it was very different. It's also a multi-racial, multi-ethnic country that recognizes uh, its citizens as being um, occurring in discrete racial types. There, it's, it's Malay, Chinese, and Indian that are the big categories that are domestically resonant. But it's a place in Southeast Asia that really was position, positioning itself as a medical tourist market, as a, as a country that could cater to the needs of traveling people from East Asia and even from the Middle East, um, in part because it's also officially a Muslim country. And so it, it was making an aim at a broader regional market in this way. So Malaysia gave me a very different uh, orientation toward thinking about what could be going on with race and the circulation of racial meaning in what I thought was really a global story about cosmetic surgery.
2: Mm, Thank you for that very helpful framing and sort of locating the different levels we're talking at and the different places, because now we can get into kind of well, what's actually happening here. So when we talk about things like a cosmetic surgeon or a journal saying like the best African-American knows, I mean, how do cosmetic surgeons categorize and conceptualize Racial features and things like relative desirability.
1: Yeah. So in journal articles, they they really do categorize things in this way. You know, the, the articles were titled things like the ideal African American nose, the ideal Indian American nose. Within those articles, they would specify idealized ratios of eye spacing or nose length, um, the kind of angle of of the nose and. The relative size of nostrils, things like that—really nitty-gritty things about the Um, face—and not just saying that these are the ideals that we're holding up, but also here are the techniques to achieve this kind of look in a patient. So that was what I was seeing in these journal articles, and there was some just amount of categorizing of the variation of all human kinds. You know, they would they would give you types of within African American nose: type one, type two, type three—that they would characterize. Uh, with specific um, thresholds of different uh, features and proportions and ratios. But then they would acknowledge sometimes in the article that, oh, you know, a type 3 Indian American nose is sort of like a type 2 African American nose. You know, it was not there, like there was one standardized agreement on what type 1, type 2, type 3 meant for each of these categories. But, you know, the, the attempt to import these social and cultural categories and put them on the body ran into these kind of unexpected dead ends and uh, reduplications of, of features, right? Because you were focusing on um, classifying people by race and then characterizing their features instead of organizing people based on what they look like to begin with. And so you you surgeons would get into this kind of academic argument about what the differences were and how we should think about them and how we should treat those differences. And and in making these comparisons, sometimes they would use this language that um, often translated each of these different kinds of looks, the Indian American nose or the African American nose, to a white nose or a white reference or norm. Um, And so that language could say things like, well, this is inferior to or less than this nose. And it sounds pretty pretty negative and like it's holding up the white norm as not just normal but but as a better option overall. And so that was what I saw in the journal articles it was an exercise of characterization and that made me curious is this something that surgeons are are playing out in practice too. And so I asked surgeons about it and I observed some interactions between surgeons and patients. And I found that when you were discussing beauty ideals with surgeons They said, yeah, this is the academic way you would do it, right? There's some people who are really invested in this approach, but a lot of them talked about a kind of more holistic approach to this. And they really saw this push to creating these ways of specifying ideal African-American beauty or ideal Indian-American beauty as expanding what beauty norms were from a single historical one, one size fits all white norm. And so they were saying, this is really just an attempt for us to say, we're going to tailor things to your face. We're not going to make you look like everybody else or like, you know, the, the latest white movie star. But we're recognizing that, that there's a, a subset of things that would work better for you. And we know what we can offer there. So it was a little bit less a, a general pronouncement in person about the relative desirability of, let's say, a white norm over others. At the same time, surgeons would also say, you know, people come in asking for certain things. They only come in asking certain directions and the directions that they're asking for, the kinds of ideals they're asking for, they're consistent with things that we see in magazines, in um, movie stars. You know, there's, there's, there is there's a, a dominant discourse on beauty, even if it has pluralized somewhat, that people are often attempting to realize on their own bodies.
2: And to what extent if at all, in these um, sort of more academic cosmetic surgery debates, are there differences when discussing race when it comes to
1: also adding gender? Yeah. So when they talk about race um, and define ideal racial types, there is almost always a explicitly gendered component built in. So 90% of cosmetic surgery patients in the United States are women give or take whether or not you count hair transplants as part of that number, but a very high proportion of um, procedures are women. And when we're talking nose jobs, it's, it's 75% of patients are uh, identifying as women. So often if it wasn't laid out in black and white that surgeons were talking about the ideal African-American female nose, it was sort of implicit in the article in the, the pictures that were given of specific patients in the case presentations that they would lay out and then the general advice that they would give, but not always, right? That 25% of, of nose job patients who were men also came up in these articles um, and in conversations. And, and that's where you could also see how surgeons thought about race and gender together, right? That what would it mean to have a Latino nose or a mestizo nose? Um, One surgeon in an article wrote about a macho nose as being one that had, that was a nose with a bump in it. So it was a masculine sort of appearance that connoted the possibility that someone had gotten into a fight or had an accident, and that made them have this life experience and ruggedness that was potentially um, desirable to heterosexual women, right? So that there is a narrative that's of aesthetics here that simultaneously captures ideas about what it means to look um, like a member of a racial group that also has embedded in it assumptions about what what gendered performances are desirable for that group too.
2: Absolutely fascinating. Thank you for adding that in. I wanted to ask you about a section of the book um, that in some ways kind of builds on what we've been talking about, but but also very much goes further because you discuss um, these ideas, as you've been mentioning, right, of the kind of African-American nose or the Mestizo nose or the whatever. but that's about kind of what the different looks are. You also talk about in the book about sort of a a distinctive practice, I suppose, or a craft um, that you call, use the phrase Asian cosmetic surgery. What do you mean by this? and, And why is there kind of this distinctive aspect to this?
1: So Asian cosmetic surgery was something that I... I, you know, there's journal articles that if you look it up in the medical literature, that would that would um, be having this as a keyword or even as a title, but there are textbooks on Asian cosmetic surgery. There were conference sessions. Um, when I was observing the meeting of the International Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgeons, the sub theme in the year that I attended in Kyoto was Asian aesthetic surgery. So there was a sort of moment where people were really trying to advance a set, a, a project here. And what that project was, um, is something that I conceptualized as a craft, as a racialized body of expertise, um, but it's not just expertise in this book knowledge way. It also encompassed the practical knowledge, uh, the skill, the cultural and historical background uh, that ostensibly set Asian cosmetic surgery apart from other kinds of cosmetic surgery. So it had this, this different element of a distinct aesthetic genealogy and set of judgments, different possibilities of bedside manner and assumptions about what patients would want and not want.
0: This episode is brought to you by Saks.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day. At sax.com.
1: So I initially went in seeing these, this phrase used a lot. I wasn't sure whether it fully constituted a set of practices or just an attempt to realize an Asian look. And I eventually came to believe through my observations of these, these conferences and discussing with surgeons that there was a different sensibility that they were trying to capture under this title. Uh, partially it was it was trying to decenter a set of assumptions about what was aesthetically desirable and, and what kinds of materials should be used in surgery and how invasive it should be, how much it should cost. Um, but but if you go backwards in time and you think about where surgeons learned these things and came to develop these preferences um, in Asian countries like South Korea, uh, in Malaysia, in Japan, in Taiwan, you, you do see a few different historical genealogies behind it that that uh, could go either way. So often when we think about what kinds of procedures would go under a label of something like Asian cosmetic surgery, we might think about procedures that were really pioneered by American plastic surgeons who were operating during the occupation in Korea during the occupation and war there and in Vietnam subsequently. And there's a kind of narrative that American surgeons have shaped an Asian cosmetic surgery that was trying to make patients who lived in these places look more um, hybrid, white, Western. That's something that uh, a prominent plastic surgeon named Dr. Ralph Millard wrote a lot about um, based on his time practicing in Korea. But what I was also finding were uh, records of surgeons who had studied in Japan as early as the 1890s who were pioneering very similar kinds of techniques and procedures um, to, to make a wider eyelid, for example, or a rounder eyelid, um, and who would link this from the beginning to a set of uh, Asian aesthetics and genealogies to, to, a, to Japanese physiognomy or Chinese uh, physiognomy traditions, which are, which are face reading traditions that really, um, and they, they prescribe a set of meanings that, that are accompanied with different kinds of facial configurations. And so you could sort of see that in parallel at the same time. And really before there were, there were these other, uh, people within Asia advancing ideas about how people should look and techniques to achieve them. And uh, the the doctor that I write about more extensively in this chapter um, as kind of an alternate to, to Dr. Millard is Dr. Kubu Chai who practiced in what was then the colony of Malaya and wrote in English in some of the same journals like plastic and reconstructive surgery about what an oriental, uh, surgery would look like, and what people were looking for, and how it was different. So there is this kind of longer-term project here too. Um, that and, and 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 this isn't to say that Asian cosmetic surgery was ever this this separate project, totally free from any uh, exchange with the outside world. But just to say that there these exchanges between uh, between scientific communities and between aesthetic ideas in. In Asia and the East, and in in the West and the United States, these have a much longer history than sort of just linking it to the world post World War II era.
2: And why isn't there something similar for I don't know some some other either place or group of countries or particular medical tradition? What why is there sort of the craft of Asian cosmetic surgery and the kind of unspoken presumably white-dominated one and just those two options?
1: Yeah. So one one thing I was thinking about was, well, what about the development of a quote-unquote Latin cosmetic surgery that comes from South America? And this was a label that uh, occurred to me out of listening to some talks at the International Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgeons, where it became very clear that there was a kind of also distinct sensibility for surgeons who were practicing in Colombia, in Brazil, um, and in, in, in Mexico or Venezuela to some degree, right? Or that they would claim this identity and this claim this distinction from their counterparts who were practicing in Asia or from their counterparts practicing in Europe or the United States. And so this is partially what made Partially what makes Asian cosmetic surgery stand out and stand together as a project is not just the the history of certain things being done in certain places, but an active investment in uh, in an infrastructure and in a set of communities um, that makes it come into being. So what I mean by this is that countries like Malaysia and South Korea have had governmental investments in cosmetic surgery um, and in cosmetic surgery tourism. So the, there's, a, there's a kind of emphasis of, on, on attracting people from throughout the region and on promoting a larger regional set of exchanges and projects in a way that I didn't, I didn't find that kind of evidence in the period, in, at least in which I was researching, for, for what was happening in South America. Um, you know, part of it is countries like Malaysia and South Korea are relatively smaller than some of the other countries we might be talking about. And so this idea of banding together into a regional market uh, was a way of tapping into much larger potential markets than you would just get domestically in any one of these countries, if you could bring China into the equation in particular. So um, that was one factor. Another factor is there really... You know, these these folks who are writing about Asian cosmetic surgery, um, at least what was visible to me was this was a project happening in English. And so it enabled communication between places uh, that didn't share uh, a language other than English. So South Korea, Taiwan, um, Malaysia, you know, English would be a lingua franca here. Um, and so if there were to be this distinct literature or emergence of expertise in uh, around Latin America, South America, Central America, that might not be in English, and that could very well be a scientific project that exists in uh, a literature there. But one that's not supported by that kind of governmental approach, not just investment in cosmetic surgery, tourism, but in the idea of a regional identity that has cultural resonance in movies, in, um, in popular uh, bands, in music, and, and things like that.
2: Mm, Very interesting to tease apart those differences. So thank you for helping us understand kind of the world of the academic side, I suppose. Um, Letting us then go into the, I guess, more practical element, the, the, the client facing side. How does this work on that level? How do cosmetic surgeons style themselves to clients in terms of enabling racial looks, gatekeeping racial looks? Is this something that we can see differences between the US and Malaysia? Or are these practices relatively similar?
1: So I was very, very committed to not just looking at how surgeons talked about this in academic discourse, but to also seeing something and learning something about how they organize their practice and how they discuss their practice. And so that's that's a important pivot here that you know okay we are we're academics we know that we write these things we emphasize distinctions to make a point uh, to our fellow academics but what do you do with that distinction you know face face to face you have to actually act on it does is it such a sharp distinction in practice um and so what i found in in trying to uh, operationalize how surgeons acted as gatekeepers in the US and Malaysia is they, both in, surgeons in both countries did see race as having some significance for what patients would be asking for um, and, and considerations that they had to keep in mind when doing um, procedures. But what I initially expected when I went to Malaysia is that I would see something pretty similar to what I had found in the United States, which is that surgeons would be developing beauty ideals um, in line with the existing racial categories that were widely recognized or enshrined in the U.S. census, like Asian American, African American, um, Hispanic or Latino, those, and, and white, right? I thought that, okay, so in Malaysia, I expect to see... One Malay ideal, an Indian ideal, a Chinese ideal, and then maybe a white ideal for for people who are visiting from New Zealand, Australia, or who are expats. But that wasn't what I found. Um, and so, when confronted with the you know proliferating number of ideals, I had to sit back and think about what's really happening here, right? Um, and that's where I came up with this insight of this of the natural look, but as the natural as related to. Uh, being racially legible as a member of your existing racial category, as not crossing racial boundaries or lines in either country. So in that respect, U.S. and Malaysian surgeons were similar. They were helping people uh, change their appearances incrementally, but not so dramatically that they would uh, transform to an outsider their possibility of um, inferred racial membership. But what was different between the U.S. and Malaysia is... uh, that in the US, surgeons would define what ideals were for different racial groups that they saw regularly. And so they would have a kind of African-American or Black ideal and a Hispanic or Latino ideal um, and decide when a patient asked a request if this crossed the line too much. They were really very carefully parsing patient stories for Um, explicit requests for racial transformation, in which case they denied it. They were really not interested in doing that. Um, But they also were looking for implicit requests. And and they saw uh, a patient who was pushing even implicitly. If there were a patient of color, let's say you had a Latino patient who is pushing to to look um, or for features that they thought would look white or whiter, Surgeons might say, like, you know, I don't know if surgery is for you. I don't know if our aesthetics line up. This doesn't conform to the kind of natural look that I'm trying to go for. And natural here also means they don't, surgeons don't want, um, surgeons in both countries did not want in general to do procedures that were very obviously fake or artificial. They wanted it to look as though um, plausibly someone did not have plastic surgery done, which is a little bit of a paradox, right? Because if nobody knows that, uh, you had plastic surgery done, then you know that it's not really helping their your business as a plastic surgeon who who um, only treats people who are trying to look different. So that was the, the sort of picture in the United States, and this attempt to help everybody look better but stay in their own racial lane was a norm that I call ethnic preservation in the in the book, the goal of ethnic preservation. So in Malaysia, Surgeons also operated with this goal of ethnic preservation to some degree. You know, they were not seeing... They, surgeons dismissed out of hand the possibility of um, Malay patients requesting to look Chinese or Chinese patients requesting to look Indian. They were like, you know, I would never do that. People don't ask for that. That would be silly. Um, but what they, when they were talking about what a natural look versus an artificial look was or a fake look, natural for them was something that looked more... Um, the, the word that they used was more Asian. And so I became interested in what Asian meant to Malaysian surgeons, right? Um, it was a category that united uh, Chinese and Malay patients in particular, but also medical tourist patients from China, from Indonesia, from other other nearby countries. Um, it didn't necessarily include Indian patients um, who you know they were kind of in this category, closer to Western in, in Malaysians conception. But the reason that this boundary was so important for Malaysian surgeons of what an, a sort of natural Asian look was versus an artificial Western look was they were drawing a line from for the idea that uh, that patients were trying to look white or Western by obtaining procedures like an eyelid procedure to get a, a rounder or bigger eye, um, and they wouldn't just say, oh, some procedures have that connotation. They would say, you know, I'm going to do the procedure differently. And at this millimeter length, this is a natural Asian look. But if you go up to, you know, a few millimeters higher, then that's a, that's a Western look. And that's going to look weird and odd. And they would try to steer patients away by saying things like that of, in the consultation that, oh, like, is that really what you want? You know, it's it doesn't look natural. And um, and so this language of natural is really what I heard in the encounters Um and is something that surgeons themselves also reported as being important in guiding patients aesthetically, um, because maybe people don't all agree on exactly where the boundary of uh, of a look is that it make that that someone changes their look, but you know they're still African American or changes their look, but they're still um, you know Malay, but they do kind of they can say, well, this feels too. Too much, right now it looks like you've done some plastic surgery that looks fake or artificial. This is more natural. We got to pull it back, and so that's really um, something that they were doing, and and they were gatekeepers in the sense that um, they surgeons could could not only have this language guiding patients by by saying these things are natural, beautiful, good. Um, And these things are weird, odd, but also they could refuse to operate on patients who asked for things that were not consonant with their aesthetic vision and their racial vision. And they did refuse patients uh, on those grounds, especially patients looking for what they thought of as racial transformation.
2: So what then does this look like almost in the in-between of the academic and the client facing? You mentioned the idea of kind of, well, hang on, focusing on natural in some ways is bad for business. Mm-hmm. How did surgeons talk about all of this in terms of business branding, you know, making some
1: enough of a name for themselves that people knew to come to them? Yes, this was a challenge that they actively struggled with and, and freely discussed this as being something that was a work in progress. Um, and so what I found in the, in the case of Malaysia was that Surgeons were a lot more comfortable uh, putting forward race as part of the conversation, as part of, as a part of what they had to offer to patients. Both in terms of saying, hey, you know, shared racial background with a patient can promote rapport. Um, and if, you know, I only have one racial background and one, you know, second or third language at my disposal, but I have the possibility of a, a much larger staff. Uh, nurses, estheticians, who could be, a, could could ha- hail from different racial or religious backgrounds, and that that makes a difference in connecting to patients. And so surgeons in Malaysia really leaned into this, and they saw it as important not only to appeal to the full range of the Malaysian patients, um, and that using race explicitly in this way was something that was legible and non-offensive to Malaysians, and that helped business, um, but not just to Malaysians, to, to people from... Um, other parts of the world too, right? With that eye towards a medical tourist market. So they really, they really offered uh, this possibility of a racially sensitive experience. Um, and one example of what that looked like was uh, surgeons of all uh, races and ethnicities and Mal- races and religions in Malaysia would promise uh, patients who were Muslim, a a Muslim-sensitive experience, of a Malay experience, of warm hospitality, uh, but also halal food during recovery, um, and the and and the consideration of what kinds of materials were going into plastic surgery products or implants or fillers. So they were thinking, like, yes, let's put this front and center to make clear a set of of values and assumptions to our potential patients. Um, in in the United States, it was a more complicated calculus for the surgeons. Uh, they, they didn't want to... Um, so some surgeons did say that they were specialists in ethnic cosmetic surgery or some even more specific type like African-American uh, rhinoplasty or um, Asian cosmetic surgery. Those are those, and, and the people who did that said, I made a strategic decision that I'm going to set apart my practice by saying that I'm an expert in these sets of techniques and aesthetics. And then I'm going to see a whole bunch of, I'm going to attract a lot of attention from that group. But potentially at the expense of attracting the attention of white patients or patients of other races. Um, but, you know, they worried about that. They said, am I, you know, am I pigeonholing myself? Is this in a big enough market? What am I really promising here? Because I could I could operate on anybody. I have the skills to do that. There's nothing special about you know um, what I'm doing here. I just and and there's and they didn't make any claims of of um, most cases of trying to create that rapport based on a shared racial background. So they would say like I could do this to anybody. What racial cosmetic surgery or, or uh, ethnic cosmetic surgery is really signaling to patients is we are not just going to reflexively make patients of color look white. We're, tr- we're going to tailor something to you. And so they were struggling with other ways to sort of convey this customization, you-ness focus, um, because some surgeons outright came and said, I don't know if using racial words, r- racial categories, racial branding is racist. You know, like it's one thing to say, oh, I speak Spanish. That's a skill that, you know that my clinic has or that I have, but, but beyond that, what can, what is really meant by these kinds of, of labels, you know, and this comes out of a difference in the larger U.S. society and culture um, of, of an expectation of colorblindness, especially in this institutional setting of medicine, where it felt to surgeons, like they didn't really, this almost didn't feel professional to talk about, even if it did help them navigate the, the, the need to, to drum up a market and make visible how they had a set of skills and practices that maybe differed from uh, from some of their colleagues, but also from a generation of cosmetic surgeons that had come prior that really was promising a one-size-fits-all look to patients. Hmm.
2: Really interesting to think about um, how kind of bigger contextual things impact this very particular area. Um, can you tell us maybe a little bit more about kind of given all of these hurdles and all this balancing that has to be done about getting clients sort of through the door, what then did you find in the actual conversations with clients? You know, it sounds like in the academic setting, a lot of these discussions about race are pretty direct, right? Is mm-hmm. that still the case in like the
1: examining room? So, nothing it's nothing like it on the examining room and I think that one uh, line I have somewhere in the book is you know these standards that I talk about in these medical journal articles for the large part they really sit on the shelf when it comes to the clinic it informs um, it gives surgeons some ideas about how they might practice it's a set of techniques that they could experiment with but when it comes to talking one on one with a patient Uh, racial categories were often a little bit too general to be useful in really guiding the encounter. You know, if you're a a patient who, let's say, let's take a Malaysian patient who comes in and says, I want to look Asian. You know, I want to do an eyelid surgery, but I still want to look Asian. Or sometimes they would say, I want to look oriental. You know, the surgeon would say, well, okay, I kind of think I know what that means, but I don't, you know, to be sure... They would take a picture of, this, of the patient, they would put it on a monitor and go through the patient's face together, pointing out exactly what they wanted to change. Sometimes they use software programs to modify the, pace, the, the face. Other times, surgeons would just use a little tool to, to directly lift the eyelid to different heights and be like, well, what do you think of this? Do you think this looks natural? Do you think that this looks good? Like, what is this what you're looking for? They would try to to make it in the language of uh, of the visual, of the measured, because the the racial categories themselves were deliberately ambiguous and subjective. And so that would get people in the door. And it, it certainly circumscribed a set of meanings, but it wasn't specific enough to decide on exactly what a surgeon should do for the patient in front of them. Um, and so, you know, people didn't really come in and announce, uh, you know, I'm this this member of this racial group, and I want to look more this, you know, they would instead, uh, they would often point to a feature like their nose and say, this is crooked. I would like it to be straighter, or I would like this to be longer. Um, and so that's really the terrain that, pe- that the conversation happened with, happened prim- primarily um, the, the place where there was often a, the possibility of racial meanings to sort of be part of the, the conversation, Um, Though not as though implicitly, was by uh, patients and surgeons discussing specific examples of other people with a given look. So using celebrity examples like Jennifer Lopez or Beyonce or Cindy Crawford um, as as oh I want her nose or I want her um, curvy profile. that would be a place where there would be some sort of conversation. Um, another way that this sometimes came up is, oh, I'm looking for an LA look. So those again, like give you something about a certain sense of sensibility, what, what people find to be aesthetically pleasing or attractive, but it still for the surgeons didn't give them enough to know exactly what to do to the nose or to the, the chin of that patient. And so That really required um, a much more fine-grained negotiation with patients and their actual bodies. And that's what I saw in the clinic.
2: Very interesting to see that kind of different register um, in the different settings. So thank you for doing that comparison for us. If we zoom out, though, from the kind of smallest level of in the clinic room to really the the biggest level of what you were talking about right at the beginning, that the fact that this is a global story, Mm -hmm. what do you think are some of the consequences or implications of this use of racial categories in cosmetic surgery?
1: So I think that um, it's it's. There's a whole lot of possible directions that this has gone and can go, right? One is that um, I think it's worth recognizing that there has been an expansion of beauty ideals and uh, techniques to achieve those ideals in cosmetic surgery uh, to more closely reflect the variation in human appearances that we see in the world, right? Um, This reflects the fact that cosmetic surgery has become more more accessible economically to a broader range of people. It's become um, a cheaper practices in some some ways, or there's there are practices that are less expensive. Um, medical tourism enables people to take advantage of price differentials based on standards of living in different countries, um, and there people have there, there's growing middle class in many countries, and and upper middle class and wealthy folks who can afford to travel internationally. Um, and realize uh, some change in themselves, and to consume also a broader array of uh, beauty ideals and cultural products that feature different ideals such that they don't neatly map onto the, um, the narrow class structures and country structures that we um, might expect. So there's an expansion. I think that that is something that um, the use of racial categories signals and facilitates in cosmetic surgery, But the problem with the use of racial categories in cosmetic surgery is that uh, it enshrines race as as a biological concept, again, anew, um, and it makes it embodied, right? Um, Even as it recognizes that maybe uh, racial-specific ideals of beauty really have a basis in culture, right, in in what different communities value and that it's subject to some degree to trends um, and to the... To the visibility of certain celebrities, right? That's cultural. But if people change their bodies to look like that, and the new standard of African-American appearance um, is redefined by surgeries that that um, that surgeons do, such that we see uh, African-American as a certain kind of body, that is taking a cultural concept and a socio-political concept and rendering it embodied. Um, and so it's, it's reforging a connection between uh, race and the body that, um, that decades of scientists, uh, sociologists and others have really sought to break, right. To, to really emphasize how uh, race is a socio-political construct that it's about a set of hierarchies. It's not, it's not just, this thing that people are born with. Um, and surgeons would too say, you know, um, I can make people, they recognize a a fluidity and a plasticity in the body that race doesn't neatly map onto the body. This was a very clear thing that came up in my interviews and conversations with surgeons, but it's a, it's a concept that helps pin down things for people. And it's subjectivity allows, uh, uh, people to be brought in who might not be interested otherwise. And so it's a sort of strategic move to include it that way. So, because cosmetic surgeons literally reshape the body um, to conform to their definition of a racial category, it changes the definition and the contours and the boundaries potentially of racial categories. Um, not just you know making it embodied, but but they become a gatekeeper into how we we see this um, and and can and change the, the sort of goalposts of where the categories start and stop, and, and what they mean. So it, by changing what people see as a normal Latina appearance, a normal Indian American appearance, surgeons are, are also rewriting racial meaning. And that's, that's where the book title comes from refashioning race. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so the centrality of this category uh, means it's hard to imagine moving away from racial categories in cosmetic surgery or in medicine more broadly because they have this tighter inter- intertwining uh, with the body and 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 mesh the the kind of societal and cultural notions in the body too hmm.
2: Well, very much then a global story, um, a historic one, and and very much the future as well. So thank you for giving us rather a lot to think about. Um, if I can ask a final question about what you're thinking about, now that this book is done, is there anything you might be working on now or looking to work on, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic
1: that you'd like to preview? So I've been thinking about um, another another kind of medical innovation that has the possibility of changing how people think about their bodies and think about the relationship between the body and society um, and the body and willpower. And that's this class of drugs called GLP-1 receptor agonists. So you may have heard of this under the trade name Wegovy or Monjaro. Um, but these are drugs that were initially approved for diabetes treatment uh, that are recently um, being tested in higher formulations for weight loss. And so I'm really interested in tracing the pop culture narrative about these drugs, which uh, you know, they, I, all my undergraduate students know about them because celebrities lose a lot of weight very quickly taking them. Um, but also the extent to which there's this kind of global scientific uh, innovation story happening and diffusion story happening akin to what um, I trace with a cosmetic surgery book, you know, is this something that um, that governments take up to, to sort of address the growing uh, proportion of people who are overweight or obese in, in countries worldwide? At what price point does it become uh, feasible to do so? Does this change stigma around weight? Uh, does, it, does it feel like a shortcut or an easy way? Are there natural or artificial ways to, to lose weight? These, these drugs open up some of the, these kinds of questions, which I feel like I'm not done exploring yet.
2: Well, that sounds fascinating. Uh, Hopefully it becomes a book and we can have you back and you can tell (laughs) us all about it. Um, But of course, in the meantime, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled Refashioning Race, How Global Cosmetic Surgery Crafts New Beauty Standards, published by the University of California Press. Alka, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank
1: you so much for inviting me.